As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Psychology of Games podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jamie Madigan. In every episode of this podcast, I examine an intersection of games and psychology, often with the help of a guest expert. But this episode is another in the continuing series that I'm doing where I just do a little lecture that I had previously done for Geek Therapeutics. You can find them at geektherapeutics.com. If you're a therapist and you want to find out how to incorporate things like video games, movies, comic books, and other vessels of pop culture into your practice, that's a pretty good place to go. They've got all kinds of training and certification and other resources to do that, including a lot of lectures like this one, where I'm going to talk about the psychology of pricing, specifically in the context of digital sales for video games and tabletop role-playing game products. So if you like this kind of stuff, what I suggest you do is go to psychologyofgames.com where you can check out all the other things that I have created along these lines. You can find lots of other episodes of the podcast, find out how to subscribe to it, just search for it wherever you get your podcast and you'll find it. But you can also find hundreds of other articles that I've written on the overlap between psychology and games. You can find out how to support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash POG. That's for Psychology of Games. How to buy the books that I've published on this topic and all other kinds of good stuff like how to follow me on social media. So I hope that you enjoy this lecture. If you do, the book that it is largely taken from, Getting Gamers, The Psychology of Video Games and the Impact on the People Who Play Them, uh, you can find a lot of other chapters similar to this one. So thanks much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy. Glad to be back for another lecture. So as was mentioned, this discussion, this topic is uh, going to mainly focus on why we get excited about digital sales. And some of the stuff that I'll be discussing today will also be relevant to more traditional sales, things that you might see in a brick and mortar 
uh, type of store. So hopefully you'll be able to apply some of that to those shopping experiences. But really what I was interested in when I was preparing this material was things like, you know, Steam sales and Epic Game sales and sales in like app stores on your on your phones. And especially like those big annual events, like what are some of the psychology behind the pricing and the marketing of that kind of stuff? If you're interested in in-app purchases and microtransactions and battle passes and that kind of stuff, uh, I'm not going to cover that stuff so much here. But good news is that uh, there's a future lecture that I'm going to be doing here as well that focuses just on in-app purchases and microtransactions and so forth, because that's such a big topic to warrant its own discussion. So yeah, why we get so excited about digital sales and collections and, and all that fun stuff. Just as a little bit of preamble before we dive into the topic, uh, my name is Dr. Jamie Madigan. I'm an author, I'm a podcaster, and I'm a, a psychologist by training and experience. And for the last I don't know, 11 or 12 years since 2009, late 2009, I've been writing uh, about the psychology of video games, the overlap between psychology and games and how psychology can help us understand why games are designed the way they are, why they're marketed and sold how they are, and why we behave as we do when we play them. Been doing that a while, uh, mostly at psychologyofgames.com, and been podcasting as well and then doing uh, lectures like this one. So I love video games, obviously. I love video game sales. I love buying video games uh, when they're, you know, ones that I expect to get a lot of value out of. So I'm a booster for that, and, and I'm a booster for psychology. So none of what you're going to hear here is going to be like moral panicky or sensationalist, I hope. Not going to be uh, about like secret weapons, although I might reveal a few like tips and tricks that marketers and sales uh stores use when they're selling and having sales events and so forth. But uh, hopefully my what I'll do for you today is give you the information that you need to sort of approach these things on your own terms in being informed, knowing what's going on, and then leaning into it when you're, uh, when you're ready to and, and happy to. That said, we can move on to a little story I'm going to, I'll tell to sort of set the scene on this. And it's about a very non-video gamey retailer called JCPenney. If you're not familiar with JCPenney, they're one of these big box department stores that usually were in like shopping malls uh, and they sell clothing and house goods and all kinds of different stuff, but very large, very, you know, sort of established. But in 2011, they were kind of having trouble, despite having been around for so long. And so they hired a guy by the name of Ron Johnson, who sounds like he should be a character on Parks and Recreation, and in my mind, he is. But in reality, he was a new, their new chief executive, and he had kind of come off of some very successful gigs at places like Target and Apple. Target, another big box store. Apple, you probably know them. Uh, with their big retail spaces that they have as well. So he was help, like responsible for big makeovers at those companies. So JCPenney was excited to have him come on board. And like right away, Johnson announced uh, some big changes. So there were lots of changes to like the rollout or the, uh, the layout of stores and sort of how things were presented. And the idea was that Johnson wanted to make JCPenney like a cool place to come and like hang out and look around until you decide to buy something much like the Apple stores 
uh, are, if you've ever been in one of those. But he made one other very substantial change to JCPenney that I think that he probably ended up regretting, and I know that JCPenney ended up regretting his making it. He did away with something that was very fundamental to the typical JCPenney shopping experience, coupons and sales. So people that went to JCPenney used to love to like stack coupons, wait for sales so they can get like this pair of jeans for $15 or or some crazy price. You know, when they applied these two different coupons and used their JCPenney cash and waited for things to go on sale. But Johnson thought that that kind of went against his ideas of making JCPenney like a cool place that you would just kind of come into and browse around to see what's new. So he largely did away with coupons and largely did away with these big sales events. And it was, it, it, admittedly, it was kind of weird because JCPenney was the kind of place where something was always like perpetually on sale. So things would always be on sale, which sort of stretched the definition of sale. Uh, to the extreme. And you always felt like, well, if I wait and come back in like a week towards the end of the season, I'll be able to get that thing for cheaper and so forth. So he did away with all that, thought that it would be able to sort of upscale the image of the store and make people, you know, be a little bit, treat them a little bit more fairly, make, be a little bit more predictable. So you can come in and you can buy something and you can be sure that it wasn't going to go on sale the next day and you weren't like missing out and so forth. And you didn't have to like mess with coupons. And they had like these commercials where JCPenney shoppers would like open their mailbox and they would get a little literal torrent of coupons shooting out of their mailbox. Kind of, kind of actually a very funny commercial. Uh, and they reacted very poorly to that. At least the actors in the commercials did. But in reality, the shoppers reacted to these changes poorly and wanted their torrent of coupons back. Uh, it turns out that they love sales, they love coupons, they loved bargain hunting, and Johnson had neglected the psychology of pricing and bargain hunting, which is something that we're going to talk about today. And as a result, shoppers stopped coming, sales went down by 32% in just the fourth quarter of 2012 alone. A 32% drop in sales for a company like JCPenney is huge. And as a result, Johnson got the boot and JCPenney brought coupons back. So in the balance of the talk today, I'm going to kind of talk about some of the psychology that Johnson and his colleagues at the time uh, missed and didn't really think about. And how that can actually be interesting and fun for people, but also you need to understand what's going on so that you can approach it on your own terms, as I said earlier. I'm going to apply a lot of this sort of stuff to digital sales fronts. And for computer games, this is things like Steam, Epic Games Store, the Sony Store uh, on the PlayStation, the Xbox, uh, Microsoft Store on the Xbox consoles, etc. Because Gamers love a good deal, they love a good sale, and these big online digital platforms have noticed, and they have found a way to take this relatively new concept of buying digital games and make it interesting and fun and do some things that get us uh, to keep coming back and spending money on games and uh, sort of stay engaged in the ecosystem. So I'm going to talk about what they could have learned or what JCPenney folks could have learned from understanding why digital sales can be so effective. And in fact, like according to, I think it was the ESRB 
research that I saw recently, well over half of video game sales are digital. Uh, this was like a couple of years ago. And honestly, that sounds low to me. I would actually expect that more than half, like a lot of, uh, of video game sales are digital, as opposed to going and buying a box at a store. And when you add it, and that number gets even more when you start adding in things like streaming or renting games digitally, which is a new market that some of the big console owners are, are pushing. And especially when you consider mobile games that you play on your phones, that's like the only way to buy those games, right? Like maybe you can go to the store to Target and buy like a, a code, a card on a physical card. But really, at the end of the day, you're just punching that code into your device and then downloading the game digitally. So it's the same thing. So it, there, it's a very popular way to buy games. And all the experts that I read up on say that, yeah, this is only going to become more and more prevalent and it's going to become more and more like the normal way to purchase games. So I think it'd be kind of uh, useful to understand what's going on. So given all that, in this lecture, um, you should understand many of the tricks and techniques that are used in digital sales of video games, but also other things in general. You should understand the psychology behind why they are often so successful. And I'll talk about specific psychological research and phenomenon and theory and, and so forth. And you should, uh, it should help you be aware of these uh, practices and how you can engage with sales on your own terms. Because as I said, everybody loves a good sale. These things are popular and it's great to go and pick up a game that you've been thinking about playing and just haven't gotten around to for 60% off or just a few dollars or, or what have you. So the first um, thing, the first technique that game vendors and, and online sales place uh, sale, storefronts use is artificial scarcity and psychological reactants. I kind of package these two together. In 2010, back in 2020, a, a woman sold a copy of this game. Uh, it's a 1987 NES stadium events for the for the NES, and she sold it on eBay for $13,105 for just a cartridge uh, of the game. And even more interestingly, she did it basically by accident as a part of a box full of games that she had found like in a in basement or attic, I forget, but like she had just found this box full of games, listed them all as a lot, and collectors then noticed that this game Stadium Events was in there. And it uh, drove the price up to over $13,000. And that's because the game is super rare because Nintendo pulled almost all copies of it and destroyed them so that they could instead promote a different like track and field style game. So they had like these two games coming out. They didn't want them to compete with each other in the marketplace. So stadium events lost out. It was like a finished game and like these cartridges had been created, but Nintendo apparently took them all and destroyed almost all of them. And only a few of them slipped through. So it's actually super rare and collectors are, you know, really interested when these things become available. And that rarity is what makes the game so popular. And you've, you know, probably seen other examples of this, of like super, super rare Beanie Babies or, you know, postage stamps with printing mistakes or whatever it is. Like often it's the rarity of the thing that makes it so valuable. Nothing particularly special. By all accounts, this is not like a particularly good, you know, game. Uh, but people want it because it's so rare. And if you think $13,000 for this game is a lot, 
well, then I've got an update for you because in two, in 2017, a different copy of the game sold for almost $42,000. So just amazing. Uh, if you ask me that somebody would spend 42 grand and that this is just sort of so popular and so attention getting, even if you're not interested in collecting, people are kind of gravitate towards this game and this story and want to know more about it just because it's so rare. This um, rare or unavailable equals valuable mentality is not limited to obsessive collectors, in fact. And it's, you know, the idea is that you evaluate something as more valuable because it's rare. It's just one of those decision-making shortcuts that sticks with us and gets triggered so easily when our brain is trying to make sense of something because, you know, over a lifetime, it offers a pretty good trade-off between accuracy and mental effort. So like most of the time, rare equals valuable. It's going to be so, at least somewhat true. But there's just going to be these sort of situations like stadium events where it's not necessarily true. And then there's going to be, as we'll see, like certain sales tactics that try to trigger that response, trigger that heuristic, that mental shortcut um, that uh, is not, not necessarily true. Um, some psychologists showed how easy it is to trigger this mental shortcut with cookies and not the kind that you have on a website, but like the kind that you might pick up and eat, a big nice chocolate chip cookie. And these researchers set up a, a study in a grocery store and actually told shoppers that they were measuring people's preference for different chocolate chip cookies. And they put uh, in front of people either a jar full of cookies or an almost empty jar with just a few of the same types of cookies, depending on like which experimental condition they were running at the time. So giant glass jar full of cookies, giant glass jar, same size, but only a few of the cookies. Subjects would try slash shoppers would try one of the cookies and then they would rate like the attractiveness and how much they would pay for this cookie and so forth. And of course, the researchers found that the subjects drawing from the nearly empty jar found the cookie or rated it at any rate more delicious, more desirable, and more worthy of a high price than relative to people who picked cookies out of a, out of a almost full jar. And the researchers argued that it was the perceived like rarity or scarcity, you know, they were about to run out of these cookies in the almost empty jar that influenced their perceptions and thoughts around this. Same cookie, just different presentation, triggering this rare equals good um, response. And this is often called the scarcity principle. So you hear about this a lot where one of a good, a good sales tactic is to say like, ah, oh, this is only available for a limited time or, oh, I'm, this offer is only good. It's only on the table right now. As soon as we walk out, it's gone. Something is scarce. Something is dwindling an opportunity that triggers that rare equals valuable mental shortcut. You see this in video games a lot as well. So these are images from a couple of emails that I got from a website called Good Old Games, who used to sort of almost exclusively sell like old games, like, like the name implies, but more recently in the last few years have started trying to compete with like Steam and Epic and so forth, selling slightly older games. But they use a lot of these sort of sales techniques where they sent me an email and it had like a functional timer, like you sort of see here. So like for the one on the left, Darkest Dungeon, it says, hey, time left for this sale on this game, two days, 20 hours, 23 minutes, nine seconds. And that would like literally be counting down in my email inbox. And if I got to it like a day later, it might have only had a few hours left. Another one that they sent me on the right for different um, 
set of games for like an Easter sale, I think it was. So you see all this like limited time offer, limited time to grab the deals. Um, you see it in daily and weekly deals that a lot of these storefronts will run, you know, like, hey, this is only available for the next 24 hours or it's only available until the end of the day on Friday. Limited time deals, limited inventory was another one that I'll talk a little bit about in a minute, which is kind of strange in the context of digital sales of thinking about limited inventory. But again, like the point is that when we think that an opportunity is limited in availability, we perceive it as more valuable than we otherwise would. This is completely artificial, of course, because there's an unlimited supply of ones and zeros like on the on the Internet. Like there's no physical restrictions on the number of copies that could be sold of this game or during what time frame. It's just all artificially constrained by the storefront and the deals that they've made with the publishers. And there's a related um, concept here called psychological reactance uh, that I find really interesting as well. And that is the, the threat of losing an opportunity to do something is a special case of the scarcity principle, and it can also trigger something called psychological reactance. So the idea of losing choices can make us see those threatened choices as more attractive. If you say, I'm going to take away this option, it's going to be off the table, it's going to be gone, then I will often... I will, I will be more likely to look at that option and rate it as more valuable. So, for example, in one study of the effect, uh, a group of psychologists looked at Florida housewives' reactions to banning of laundry detergents containing environmentally unfriendly phosphates. So there was like this phosphate ban that was going to go into effect in Florida, but over the border, um, they were still going to be able to go you know, buy the same laundry detergent because it hadn't been banned in, in the other state yet. And not only did those facing that loss of choice buy more of the product before the ban went into effect, but they also rated, you know, when asked, they rated the phosphate-laden soaps as more effective, more attractive, et cetera, than the alternative that was going to be on the market as, a, as an alternative uh, to replace them once the ban went into place. You know, you look at this sort of stuff and you have to think, like, how many of us have snagged a game on a sale? just because it was on sale or about to become unavailable uh, due to a countdown like this one. And this is a pretty, a pretty reliable, pretty robust phenomenon, the psychological reactance. We tend to like things or see them as more attractive or valuable when we think that we're about to lose the opportunity to take them. Next topic is about um, reward schedules. So there's an additional psychological trick that uh, complements scarcity, and it's much easier to pull off in a digital environment, actually, than it is in a physical one. So this is one where the digital storefronts have an advantage. And it has to do with the fact that you don't always know what the next game to go on sale, either just in the course of a week or during one of these big digital sales events. You don't know what that next game is going to be. So... We haven't seen as much of it in recent years, but Steam, uh, which is you know Valve's big online storefront and sort of by far the biggest storefront for uh, PC games online, they used to do these big annual deals and uh, like week-long events, and as part of them were these daily deals or flash sales that were only available for like 24 hours. So you might see something like this where, hey, you can get this game for 75% off 
but only for the next 24 hours. And then come back tomorrow during this summer sale and another game is going to be part of that sale. They might even have shorter time periods than that. You know, every few hours something goes on sale and then the previous game sales over. So the idea is that you come back to the Steam store page every day to find out what that day's special deal was. For some reason, they stopped doing this, like I mentioned, um, as a big part of their annual sales. And honestly, I kind of miss it because I did actually find it fun to like go and look at the, the page at, at 12 o'clock noon every day for me just to see what like the big slate of deals was going to be for that day. I guess Valve maybe has data to say that well, if we just put everything on sale all the time during these events, then we get more we get more money out of it. But I kind of miss it. I kind of feel like one of those JCPenney shoppers, in fact. Epic Game Store actually does still do this on a weekly scale rather than daily with their, their free game. So if you go to the Epic Game Store, they'll have a selection of like games that are just free, like free to download and you own it forever. And then what's going to come up next is is sometimes like hinted at. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, to be announced or the mystery game or something like that. Uh, so you kind of want to come back every week, at least I do, to the Epic Game Store to see if there's a, a free game worth snagging. And of course, while I'm there, I'll look at all the other stuff and keep the Epic Game Store client installed. And then I'll play those games when, uh, when I want to through that client and so forth. So it has a lot of benefit to them as well. And you'll also see this on Amazon.com across, you know, all kinds of different goods for their Prime Day, Prime Days sales and other special events where they'll have daily time deals and you want to come back every day just to see what's new. And this is all essentially using a random reward schedule to encourage people to load up the page and see what's going on. So if you remember from either previous talks that I've done or from your Psychology 101 classes, Random rewards are the most effective type for encouraging repeated behavior. And random is just, you don't know what it's going to be. You don't know if you're going to get a reward or not when you do the behavior, as opposed to something uh, on a much tighter schedule where you get the reward every time you do the thing. Sometimes you may go to the Epic Game Store and there's something that you don't care about. Like, I'm not really sure I care about Ring of Pain uh, that's available for free, but I really might be into that Destiny 2 um, pack of content because I play that game. And I'd be like, great, that's all free. I'm just, all I got to do is click a couple of times and I get it. So the reward is random, whether it's something that I'm interested in or not, or at least it looks random, right? So the Epic, I'm sure, has all this stuff planned out, but it appears random to me. And then loading the page up and keeping the client installed and going, going to the sale page is the behavior that they want to encourage. So those uh, loading the page is the lever and those that I press and the steeply discounted or free games that I get is the little food pellet. And if that happened every time, it's going to be less sort of interesting and attention getting and motivating to me than it would be if it were just sort of random or something great one time and something not so great the next time. Hey, listeners, we're going to pause for a quick ad break here, which you would not hear if you were a Patreon supporter. But we'll be right with the Lucky Land Slots. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right back. Here is a cool uh, effect that I wanted to talk about as well. And it's the, the less is more. Or the fewer humble bundles are more. Um, sometimes a big slab of games might have limited appeal uh, to you. And this, I say this because there, there are these websites like the Humble Bundle, uh, Steam will do this sometimes as well, where they will just offer like a giant bundle of games for a certain price or name your own price in, in the case of the Humble, Humble Bundle store. And they'll say like, get every game from this publisher or get every game like in this that fits this theme, like medieval warfare or science fiction horror or whatever it is. And you'll go there and you'll see like, like, uh, for example, this one the, for on Humble Bundle website where you can get the Dungeons Complete Trilogy, you know, this package of DLC and games and other content and so forth. And then you can get a good price on it for like $25 for 17 different games and, and DLC packs. The, the Humble Bundle is, is kind of interesting because they have this offering where you can name your own price. So you can go and you can say, okay, I could pay $25 for this because that seems like a fair price, or I could pay $1 for this, or I could pay $150 for this. And the catch is that like Humble Bundle donates portions of this to charities as well. So in addition to taking their cut, if you, if you pay $25 for this bundle, $11 of that goes to this charity that they've identified. And if you pay, like a lot of times they'll say, if you pay like the average price or the suggested price, then you get additional stuff uh, thrown in for your generosity. So it's an interesting concept because you're looking at these big bundles of games, but you might already own some of that. You know, if I had already owned this piece of DLC, then I look at this deal and does that make it? like less seem like less valuable to me would i drop the price that i want to pay like a whole lot or just a little and it actually turns out that some psychologists have looked at this at this concept of this pay what you want concept or looking at prices for bundles of things and saying is that high or is that low or how much would i pay for that they haven't done it in the context of video games but they have done it in the context of dinner plates and Dinner sets, uh, which are exciting, right? Those are almost as exciting as video games. Well, bear with me in any case, because this is actually kind of interesting. Uh, these researchers from the University of Chicago conducted an experiment where 
they they like went out to like a Goodwill store or something like that, you know, a secondhand store, and found these dinner sets of plates and saucers and cups and um, all these different things, different sizes, bowls, etc. And they put different configurations of these things in front of of subjects and said, you know, imagine you were discounting, uh, visiting a discount store like the like the one where we got this. And you were looking to buy a dinnerware set. How much would you pay for for this one, for that one? In the first version of this experiment, they showed them sort of two dinnerware sets. So dinnerware set A had eight dinner plates, eight bowls, eight dessert plates, two cups, but two of them were broken, eight saucers, but one of the saucers was broken. And then in dinnerware set B, it had eight dinner plates, eight bowls, eight dessert plates, no cups, no saucers. So you look at that list and you think, well, they're the same, except that dinnerware set A contains like at least some unbroken uh, cups and saucers, whereas B doesn't contain any of that, just has the plates and bowls. And you'd be right. And when they asked people like, how much would you pay for each of these? Um, the results they got were pretty, pretty predictable, well, sort of what you might expect. People said, on average, like $32 for set A and $30 for set B, because set B had like less stuff, right? It, had, uh, it didn't have the six cups or seven saucers that set A had, so it's worth a little bit less. But while this was un unsurprising, it was interesting next because they brought people in and only showed them one or the other. They only showed them either set A or set B. And so for dinner, for set A, same exact set that in the previous version of the experiment, eight bowls, eight dinner plates, eight dessert plates, eight cups with two broken, and eight saucers with one of them broken. And people just saw that. And then they had the other half of the experiments just look at dinnerware set that had eight dinner plates, eight bowls, and eight dessert plates, and no cups or, or no saucer. And then they compared the price. They said, how much would you pay for this? Uh, and the average prices then flipped, or at least the pattern of, of prices flipped. And we found that it was interesting that people were willing to pay only like $23 for dinnerware set A when they saw it in isolation, like without being able to compare it to dinner set plate, uh, dinnerware set B. And then suddenly set B with no cups and no saucers was the more attractive option. Like people reported being willing to pay more, an average of $30 for that set. Which is kind of weird, because when you have the benefit of looking at both sets at the same time, you can see that A is actually like the better deal, because it comes with at least some cups and some saucers. The researchers explain this sort of less is more phenomenon by saying that during separate evaluation mode, when they were just looking at one of these things at a time, or just, just one and not being shown the other at all, uh, during that separate evaluation mode, the subjects estimated the value of options by comparing them to a reference point for that category. So in the example above, the, for like dinner set A, the reference point would be like a complete 40-piece dinnerware set. So if it had no unbroken, if it had, yeah, if it had no broken cups and no broken saucers, how much would I be willing to pay for that? Well, this one is not as good as that because it's got some broken pieces. So I'm going to like adjust my estimate of value down. But when they looked at something like dinner where set B, 
they chose a different reference point. They didn't think about a 40-piece set with all the cups and saucers in addition to the plates and bowls. They thought about just the eight plate, eight dinner plates, eight bowls, and eight uh, dessert plates. So those looking at set B only have, they have a different reference point, just a 24-piece set, and then they tended to devalue that um, not that much. Like, they sort of didn't bring things down because there weren't things missing or broken from their perspective, as far as they knew. So the key point from this experiment and all this stuff is that we latch onto a reference point and then work our way sort of down or potentially up from there. And we do that because we're not, as humans with our squishy brains, we're not as good as sort of evaluating things just floating off in their own in, in absence of any sort of comparison. And the way that sales or offers are presented can get us to sort of settle on a comparison that affects whether we adjust up or down or at all. So the way that things are presented is very important and can affect which reference point we use when deciding how much we would pay for something relative to, uh, to that reference point, depending on how different it is. The same researchers gave another example of this that may make it a little easier to, to follow uh, using ice cream. They found that a 10-ounce ice cream cup that was only partially filled to 8 ounces with ice cream and then compared how much people would pay for that versus like a 5-ounce cup that was like literally overflowing with 7 ounces of ice cream. So you had like a, a big cup that was only partially filled, and they compared that to a tiny cup that was overflowing but still less ice cream overall. So you had eight ounces in the big cup and you had seven ounces crammed into the little cup. And of course they found that people liked the overflowing smaller cup better because, you know, despite the fact that it's an ounce less ice cream, because the packaging and presentation mattered because they affected whether or not they anchored on like a tiny cup overflowing versus a big cup that uh, you were like leaving something out by not filling it up all the way. And you can sort of see this sort of thing happening with serving sizes and container sizes and so forth sometimes when you're out at restaurants uh, can trigger those perceptions as well. So let's go back to video games for this and look at it in that context. And let's look at that Humble Bundle. So remember, this Humble Bundle might say, like, here's these 17 items uh, in this bundle and pay what you want for, for all of them. Um, but the problem is that I may already own at least some of the things in that bundle, but my dumb brain is bad at making the, doing the mental math and gymnastics needed to adjust the value for the remaining items. I don't think about, you know, what's missing and how easily I can get it or whether or not I want to have it digitally or, you know, all these other kind of factors that may come into play. Instead, what I do is I fixate on like, well, how much would I pay for 17 pieces of content like this? Um, well, four of them I already own, so I'm not really getting those. It's almost like they're broken or, or not really in the deal because I can't even like, give away that sort of stuff. Let's say for the fact of illustration, that was the case. So, you know, this like 10 out of 17 or whatever comparison will drive down my valuation of the bundle. So I'll actually offer less for that bundle than if they had just said, here's a bundle of 10 things uh, for, you to, for you to have. If they somehow knew what those seven were that I already owned. 
And in fact, um, I've seen other retailers actually do that, get smart enough about it and, and do that sort of thing. Um, this is a screenshot from Roll20, which is a virtual tabletop for playing games like Dungeons and Dragons online. And they have Marketplace there where they will sell um, essentially books. They call them compendiums. But you can buy like, you know, the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide and this adventure book so that you can like run an adventure for your friends or participate in the adventure uh, and your friends. And those cost money to buy the digital versions of these books. And they do like a lot of other retailers do and often try to sell discounted bundles of those books to users. So they may have like the D&D Dungeon Master Starter Bundle. So if you're just like getting started on, on Roll20, you probably want like the Monster Manual, the Player's Handbook, uh, the Essentials Kit, and the Dungeon Master's Guide. Like that'll get you going. And you can have all of that for 100 and, uh, Well, normally it would be $124.96, but for... Now it's on sale for 106.22, and I'll talk about that little trick here in a minute. But they'll say, yeah, you can have this whole thing for 106 dollars and 22 cents. But if I already own the player's handbook because I started off as like a player, and there's not a version of this bundle that omits that, uh, I may fall prey to that less is more way of thinking and say, mm, 106, that seems kind of high, you know, given that I already own this book. But Roll20 has actually figured out a way around this, because if I log in and then go back to this page, it knows that I already own the player's handbook. So it says, oh, you own this one. So we're going to adjust that price down to just $80.72 for you. So it sort of does that math automatically uh, and presents me with a better deal and then sort of critically like notifies me that you're getting this better deal because you already own the player's handbook. So take that out of your reference point. It's just these three books. I think there's actually a little bit more they could do here to like de-emphasize the player's handbook and emphasize the three that you're getting. Uh, but this is a pretty good start. There's also the option where you allowing me to like build my own bundle or the hum on the humble bundle store, you know, saying like select here's 12 games that can be part of this bundle, pick eight of them for this price or for whatever price you want to pay. And I think that would go a long way towards driving up the price that I'd be willing to pay for those kinds of things and, and being more satisfied with it. The next trick um, that I see a lot of times in these digital sales is uh, around commitment and consistency. And this speaks to the fact that as a rule, we like to appear consistent in our behaviors and attitudes. So in other words, or more specifically, we like for there to be consistency between what we've said and what we do. So in the past, if I have expressed a certain preference, I will go out of my way a lot of times to make sure that my behaviors appear consistent with those previously stated positions or preferences or what have you. Well, it's not going to be enough to override every factor, or everything that could happen, but it's enough to nudge and it's enough to, um, you know, for groups of people to create predictable, uh, irrational behavior. And it also doesn't mean that we can't necessarily ever change our mind, but under certain situations, we'd rather be consistent with our stated preferences and our actual behaviors. I mean, this has been studied in a lot of different ways by a lot of different people, but I first came across it uh, when I was reading this book uh, called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini uh, years and years ago. And in his book, he tells this story about how he and like a friend kind of on a lark went to a seminar on 
what the person there was calling transcendental meditation. And they thought, well, okay, well, that'll be interesting. We got some time to kill. Let's go see it. And then when they got there, they found that the person running the seminar was saying through, quote, transcendental meditation, they could allow people to do otherwise impossible things like float in the air or walk through walls. Like they were literally saying, like, I can teach you how to walk through walls if you sign up for my seminar. And Cialdini's friend was, uh, being a man of science, was uh, amused by this and started like trying to preach the truth to the people that other people that had gathered there to hear this pitch. And the thing is that everybody had actually agreed or they had actually paid $75 to attend this little seminar. And they, so they were kind of like already committed. Actually, I'm, I'm misremembering that. So it was like a seminar that they invited people to, and then they invited them to pay $75 for the rest of the, of the, the seminar to learn how to do things like walk through walls and float and levitate and do all this sort of stuff. And Cialdini and his friend were amazed that people were willing to plunk down 75 bucks, um, especially after his you know, friend had like spoken up and pointed out how impossible this is and um, that this was just flim-flam and this guy was a huckster and, and so forth. And Cialdini's argument was that they were willing to spend that money and stay the course because of this principle of, of consistency. They had showed up, they had sat politely and listened they had sort of expressed willingness to be, you know, have their mind changed and, and to, to believe in this sort of stuff. And because of that power of consistency, a fair number of those people paid $75 to, to go through this, uh, this experience. And we can see this principle of, of commitment and consistency show up in the world of video games as well. So here's a, from an email that uh, I get from Steam. Uh, I get the a few of these every week, typically, because something on my wish list will go on sale on Steam. So a lot of times I'll add something on my wish list to Steam to be like, eh, I don't have time right now to play this game, or I don't feel like it right now, but maybe. And especially if there's a sale, I'll, uh, I'd be interested, so I'll add it to my wish list so that I can find it later. And then Steam does this thing where it says, hey, you said that you were interested in this game. You said you wanted to buy this game if it went on sale. So, hey, guess what? It's on sale. It's 75% off. It's only $9.99. So click here to buy it. And I kind of, whenever I get one of these emails, I kind of feel like this is a commitment or a promise being called in uh, when Steam does this. And so they're, they're saying, like, did you really mean it? Were you, were you serious when you said you were interested in this? Not maybe so much as if like a person were standing there in front of me and or it was a friend or somebody important to me, but enough to make, kind of make me wonder like, um, well, I did want to know when it was on sale, should I go ahead and buy it? This also may show up in storefronts where people have like community votes during special sales events. They could say like vote on which game is going to go on sale tomorrow. And if you vote for a game and it wins that poll, then the website would say like, hey, you said you wanted this game to be on sale. How about you buy it now? Be consistent with your previously stated preference and your behavior right now. And also, by the way, this sale is going to end in 24 hours, as we discussed earlier. Steam also used to do something related to this with a concept called the endowed progress effect. So the endowed progress effect explains how we're more likely to complete an action or a series of actions or want to complete a collection once we feel that we've started 
progress towards it. So like once we've started down the path to completing that action or reaching that goal, we're more likely to do it if, if we're shown evidence that we've done that. Like the punch card, you know, the, the old example of the, the Subway or sandwich shop punch card where you come in and they give you a punch on a card and they say, come back and get another one. You, they've done studies uh, similar to that where they've looked and seen that people who are sort of given starter punches on something like that are more likely to come back and finish getting their punch card filled out to get their free sandwich or car wash or whatever it is. And Steam used to do something that was essentially like a like a punch card by offering these collectible uh, summer sale cards. So they used to do this where if you made uh, enough purchases during the sales event that you got unlocked one of these little like digital cards. And these these things were pointless, right? They were just sort of there to be in your collection and you could look at them and some of them were kind of funny, but but whatever. They were not like valuable. You didn't actually do anything with them. but if you spend enough money, you unlock them. And then if you, you know, unlocked all of them, you got some sort of special reward and they gave you like one right away when you made your, your, you know, purchase or you purchased just a little bit. And so it felt like, wow, okay, well, I've got two of these things and I only need four more or five more or whatever it is. Oh, if I only spend like $3 more uh, on this purchase, uh, I'll get another card and that'll get me closer to completing the set. So uh, I might as well throw this other game that's on sale uh, in my in, in my uh, shopping cart as well and do that. And I imagine that this worked uh, fairly well for them. Another concept I wanted to talk about is anchoring and price anchoring in particular. So price is one of the most basic tools that salespeople have in their toolkit or, or storefronts have in their toolkits. How much does a thing cost and how much like, how do I present that information? And you can be pretty sure when you look at one of these digital storefronts that every bit of information about price and discounts was meticulously placed when you're looking at it during a sales event. So the backgrounds of certain numbers, the font size, the placement, white space, like there are people that know a lot more about this sort of stuff than I do, but the fundamentals is that the way that that information is presented can affect how we interpret it and the assumptions that we make about prices and the values that we place on uh, items for sale. Uh, and one of the main reasons for that is what's called uh, anchoring. And understanding the psychological concept of anchoring can help you sort of see where it's happening or where people are trying to make it happen. And then you can sort of hopefully take a step back and and approach it on your own terms and understand what's going on. This this is one of those things when when you see it or when you understand it and you start to see it everywhere that you look. Um, so let's look back at uh, some research that were done by a couple guys named Conovan and Tversky during some of their seminal research uh, on this sort of stuff. And in one of their experiments, they invited subjects in and did something very simple. And they said, What's the product of these numbers? Eight times seven times six five times five times four times three times two times one. What would you estimate? Don't don't pull out a calculator. Don't try to do it in your head. Just give me an estimate. Like, what do you think the product of those numbers is? They brought in separate groups of people, sat them down and said, what do you think the product of these numbers is? One times two times three times four times five times six times seven times eight. Now, of course, those of you with a middle school education and the benefit of seeing those two numbers back-to-back -back in, a, in a pair of slides, 
know that those products are equal. Like they have to be equal, right? Because multiplication, the order of the numbers doesn't matter. It's going to end up to be the same. But the number or the order of the numbers is the interesting bit in this experiment. And it's what had an effect on different people's perceptions or, or their estimates of what those products of those numbers are going to be. When people saw eight times seven times six times four or five times four, three, two, one, their average guess was 2,250. When people saw them in the other order, one times two times three, four, five, six, seven, eight, their average guess was only 512. 2,250 versus 512 based on just what order, whether they started with a higher number of eight and seven and six, or they started with a lower number of one and two or three. That's sort of seeing that number and then doing what Kahneman and Tversky called anchoring on it, which is where they set that as like a starting point and then sort of adjust their, their guesses up or down from there. That was a, a big effect and it had a substantial effect on people's answers. By the way, the correct answer, in case anybody has taken out their calculator and done it, can confirm the correct answer is actually 40,032, uh, which is a far cry off from even the people who were anchored at the top by the eight. Um, they only guessed uh, a tiny fraction of that. So in case that people aren't very good at doing that kind of math in their head is separate but interesting. But the most interesting th thing here is the anchoring effect. And the, peop uh, the point that People anchored on the first numbers they saw, whether it's a one or a two or an eight and a seven, and then adjusted either up or down from there. This might remind you of that more is less uh, or less is more effect that I discussed earlier with the dinnerware sets. And it's a, it's a very similar thing. We're finding a standard and we're anchoring on that. And then we're making mental adjustments up or down. And the framing and the presentation of the information and the product can affect how much we anchor up or down. or what the starting uh, reference point is for those comparisons or for those estimations. And Kahneman and Tversky found that they could do this in all sorts of fun and interesting ways. They had papers that were just like experiment after experiment of them doing this in different ways. For example, they could say, how old was Gandhi when he died? And people would, mm, well, I don't know. You know. I guess he was like this old. And then they would bring another group of people and ask a different question before they asked that. They would say, was Gandhi more or less than 144 years old when he died? And they'd, most people would say, well, less, right? Like, person that lives to 144 hasn't been born yet, right? And certainly wasn't Gandhi, uh, so he lived less. But that was just like kind of a distraction to get them to anchor on this high number of 144 so that when they then said, well, how old was Gandhi when he died? The people who had that 144 number put him in front of them uh, anchored on it and then adjusted downwards to try to guess what Gandhi's final age was. And they, on average, guessed much higher than the people who were simply asked, how old was Gandhi when he died? Uh, another set of researchers did some really fun experiments using social security numbers, not stealing them, but just asking people to think about them, where they had auctions for you know, wine and candy and like all these other different kinds of things. And they said, okay, write down how much you would be willing to bid on these different products if you were in an auction. And, but first, before you do that, write down the last two digits of your social security number. 
So somebody who had a social security number ending in, say, 08, and somebody else who had a social security number ending in 92 would write 8 or 92 at the top of their bid sheet, and they found that the people that wrote something like 92 would subconsciously anchor on that number when they went to do their estimates or, the, or report how much they would bid on these different products. Social security number didn't even have anything to do. They weren't like anchoring them on a high price for that bottle of wine or that box of chocolates. Just the fact that they had that number in front of them and on their mind was enough for the anchoring effect to take place and to happen. And so they were able to manipulate how much people said they were willing to, to bid on these different items. So we see this sort of stuff uh, come up in games, online, digital sales, games pricing, uh, and in fact, in brick and mortar places, you'll notice this when you go and look at sale signs and so forth, where people will, or, or storefronts will anchor you with like the normal price or the bundle price. So the Humble Bundle may say, this is a $281 value for this bundle, uh, but you can pay what you want. And the idea is that they show and make people recognize and sort of see first that $281 uh, value thing there, then they'll be more willing to uh, pay a higher price or to choose a higher price than they would if they omitted that information or listed like an average price that's being paid for the bundle. And then, of course, you'll always see like original price, $39.99. Uh, and but now it's only fifteen dollars. So they're hoping to get people to anchor on the thirty nine ninety nine as like the value of how much this thing is worth, and then in comparison, the the sale price looks that much more attractive. So they're thinking they're anchoring on the price closer to thirty nine ninety nine than fifteen ninety nine, so that it seems like a really good deal. But one thing that's kind of notice interesting to notice about this um, this example. Here uh, is you see the big 60% uh, off text as well. And it's interesting because you start to look at questions like, which of these would be a better pitch? Buy the Sims for 80% off for $6.99 or buy the Sims for $28 off, $6.99. And in fact, based on the research that I've seen, if you ask most people, they would say the 80% off number uh, it's sort of like a better pitch. It's like, oh, that that's better than $28 off uh, the price. Because 80, 80 is like a bigger number and it's sort of a more impressive number. And it's something that we can anchor off of relative to the, the full price of the game uh, of paying like 20% for it. But what's interesting is that that's not always true, that like percent is going to be more appealing or more impactful than dollar value. Because if you look at some very high-priced items, for example, like say you were looking at a, at a TV that costs $2,000, uh, which of these would be a more appealing price? Would it be buy this TV for 25% off, $1,500, or buy this TV for $500 off for $1,500? And in this case, the $500 is the, the much more impressive, the higher number that people will anchor on and, uh, and be more swayed by just because it's a, a more impressive and more impactful number. Uh, and then one final quick note, uh, I wanted to mention these sort of like charm prices uh, that researchers call. And these are prices that end in like 99 or 95 or, you know, 99 cents, $1.99 instead of $2 or 
$3.95 instead of $4. And these things are everywhere. Like if you look at catalogs and so forth and researchers have, they see that like these are the majority of prices that you'll see listed out in things like catalogs and stores and so forth ends with these 99. And some of those questions, you're like, well, wait, why? Nobody is really fooled, right? That like $1.99 is that much cheaper than $2 and $2 is sort of easier to add things up in your head and, and keep track of. So why don't we just say $2? And the answer is that when you make it $1.99, people have a disproportionately, um, disproportionately large estimation of of how much cheaper it is than $2. And the short of it is that people, research that I've looked at at least has found that you read a price and the fast moving part of your brain immediately anchors on the leftmost digit. They call this the left digit effect. So if you're comparing $1.99 versus two, your brain just latches onto that one. Uh, and that if you're doing a comparison, you'd think that, well, that's a better deal than $2 and, or it's a substantially enough of a, of a deal that I'm going to ignore other differences between the products or I'm going to have just a general perception that this thing is cheaper than more so than I would have if it had been just a cent more, like more than a cent would explain in my perceptions. That's the research I found. I, I don't know. This is kind of one of those things where I'm not sure. Like, I think we've all kind of just gotten so used to seeing 99 and 95 cent prices. And I kind of wonder if it works anymore. A lot of this research looked at older catalogs and so forth. So maybe take this one with a little grain of salt. I'd like to see some updated research on it. But people ask me enough about this sort of thing that I thought I'd at least mention it here. Uh, so that's what I've got. Like the key takeaway from this talk, uh, the first one is that consumers have irrational attitudes towards sales. Like we do many things. Uh, we may find value in bargain hunting beyond simply what we're saving. Bargain hunting's fun and these kind of things are fun. And it's fun to come back and see what the daily deal is. And it's fun to like think, should we buy this while we have the chance before it goes away? Should we let them call in that commitment uh, and so forth? Um, Key takeaway number two, artificial scarcity is often used to make people want something simply because rare means valuable shortcut that we often use for decision making. For digital goods, this is employed by making the opportunity to buy the thing limited. Time's going to run out. Supp even like supplies of digital things are going to run out. I've seen sales where they said like only 100, we're only going to sell this to 100 people, right? Even though, again, ones and zeros are infinite in supply. Number three, the psychological reactance phenomenon makes us overvalue something when we think we're about to lose the opportunity to buy it. Number four, surprise sales events and digging for bargains in a, is like a real-life loot drop. All the same lessons about randomness of rewards apply that they do to other uh, areas of learning and rewarding and reinforcing behavior. The lesson is more biased, describes how we may uh, adopt reference points for the value of something and then have that reference point bias our valuation, favoring six ounces of frozen yogurt overflowing from a four ounce cup versus eight ounces at the bottom of a 10 ounce cup is one example. We're more likely to see those six ounces as um, more appealing because they seem to take up so much more of the, of the space. Number six, people don't like inconsistencies between their stated intentions and their actual actions. Wish lists and pre-orders uh, use pre-commitment to buy in order to get more sales. I really didn't talk about pre-orders, but that's a, a good example that maybe I should have mentioned. It's the same uh, concept of uh, consistency. 
showing up there. Number seven, anchoring is a phenomenon that makes you bias towards your first or most salient number that you see in a sales pitch. So the most noticeable number or the first one that you sort of internalize and, and notice. Uh, this is often used to raise your estimate of how much something is worth or how big a discount you're getting. Um, the classic example of like lowballing an offer on a used car or something or, uh, you know, on a Craigslist uh, or an eBay offer or something. If you make a really low offer, you're hoping that the other person anchors on that low offer and then they'll have to adjust up from that to sort of the minimum that they're willing to accept. That's anchoring. And for some reason, I had that in there twice. Um, so that's it. That's what I've got here for the digital sales stuff. If you found this interesting and you want to find out more about the psychology of games, you can go to psychologyofgames.com. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jamie Madigan. Uh, there's a Facebook page there, and I've also published a couple of books on this topic as well. And you can go look for those uh, under my name on Amazon or wherever you buy books, or you can just go to psychologyofgames.com book.